Good morning, everybody. So we're reading today from the Old Testament, from the book of Obadiah, and we're actually reading the whole book of Obadiah, which you'll be happy to know is only one chapter. (laughs) So we've got verse 1 to 21. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say... Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you if robbers in the night oh what is oh what a disaster awaits you would they not steal only as much as they wanted if grape pickers came to you would they not leave a few grapes but how Esau will be ransacked his hidden treasures pillaged all your allies will force you to the borders your friends will deceive you and overpower you Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Men of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, O Temen, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever." On that, on that day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zeropath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Well, hello everyone again. Um, It's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me along this morning. Um, Really glad to be here. 
It's a pretty common thing for siblings not to get along, right? Yes? All the parents are nodding. Yes, yes, yes. And it began right back with Cain and Abel, but sibling rivalry is still a thing that happens today. It's people Think of people like um, Noel and Liam Gallagher. These are the guys that had this great rock band, Oasis, from the 90s. But they tore themselves apart because these two brothers couldn't get along. Think of uh, the princes, William and Harry, who, if you believe any of the tabloids, are really at odds with each other. But have you heard of the rivalry between uh, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler? No? Not surprising. These guys are brothers, Germans, and they're shoemakers. And apparently they're very good at it, very successful uh, at making shoes. But one day during the Second World War, one of them made a comment to the other and it was taken in the completely the wrong way. So much so that from that point on, really the brothers went their separate ways. Uh, rather than uh, combining their skills to make shoes together, they created their, each created their own company. And so now that we have one who's the founder of Adidas, the other the founder of Puma. Sibling rivalries. Uh, can you raise your hand for a minute if you've got a sibling? No one's got, you've got a few, yeah, we've got, a lot of us got siblings. Keep your, hand, keep your hands up there. Keep your hand up if you've ever had some kind of rivalry with one of your siblings. See, most of the hands are staying up, aren't they? Mine too. In, in our teenage years, I've got a younger brother. In our teenage years, me and my younger brother, we were often at loggerheads with each other. I can't imagine the kind of grief we cause for our parents. But if you want to talk about sibling rivalries... What we just read in Obadiah is really the culmination of 1,500 years of sibling rivalry. Let me give you a bit of background then. The background to Obadiah. It all starts with a guy named Isaac. Uh, Now you can read about Isaac in the Bible in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Uh, And these sons are very different in their personality. Esau, on the one hand, is your classic alpha male, right? He's your outdoors type. If he's going to a shop, he's going to BCF. Jacob, on the other hand, is a homebody. He prefers inside. If he's going out, he's not going to a shop. He's going to the library. And Esau, he's he's a physically stronger person than Jacob. So in their sibling rivalry, if Jacob wants to get the upper hand, he can't use his strength. He has to use his head, his brain, his cunning, his wit to get the upper hand over his brother. And so it went that, in fact, Jacob was very deceptive towards his brother and deceived him quite badly on more than one occasion. In fact, things got so bad between the brothers, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and so Jacob had to flee, had to get out of the country, had to go to another country. Now, eventually, over time, they grew up, they matured, they mellowed out, and through different circumstances, they were forced to live a bit closer together, and they learned to do that okay. Not that they were neighbours, but if, say, Jacob was living here in Modbury, Esau was happy enough to live close, you know, maybe down in Victor Harbour or something like that. Anyhow, eventually, out of these two brothers come two nations. From Esau comes the nation of Edom, and from Jacob comes the nation of Israel. And if you take a look at this map up there, you can see Israel eventually settles down in that part of the Middle East and Edom uh, kind of down to the south and east of them. Israel settled in land that was very good for farming. Uh, They could grow lots of crops, had lots of food. It was a nice place to live. 
Edom, on the other hand, had the advantage of being secure. They had safety on their side. Edom, the Edomites, they lived in, in, in what is known as the hill country. Uh, let me explain what I mean there by a picture here. This is not a city that the Edomites lived in. It was built by people who lived there after the Edomites kind of got kicked out. But it kind of shows you, doesn't it, the, the safety that would come with living in this area. If you're a foreign army and you want to come and subjugate the Edomites, well, how do you do that? How do you invade a place like this? You get picked off really easily. This is where the Edomites lived. They had safety. They lived amongst the hills, the rocks, the clefts. And so the rivalry continues between these two brother nations. At one point, the nation of Israel actually has a civil war and splits into two. The northern part of it kept the name Israel, and the southern part became known by the name of Judah. As you can see in the map there, Judah is much closer to Edom, and so they're the two nations that are at loggerheads then. Occasionally, now occasionally, they will join together and make an alliance, but most of the time they're not. They're rivals. At one time, for example, Edom joined with a bunch of other nations in attacking Judah. And at other times, uh, Judah came in and tried to take over and subjugate the Edomites. All that goes on and on and on for a number of years until at some time later, a, a much bigger, much more powerful and stronger nation called Babylon comes in. They sweep through from the north and they attack Judah. And they defeat Judah, and they take the Jews away from their city, away from their land, into exile. And what did Edom do when Judah was being attacked? How did they respond to their brother nation in this time of need? That's really what Obadiah is all about. It's the culmination of this sibling rivalry, 1,500 years in the making. That's really the background we need for Obadiah. So for the rest of the time, we're going to do two things. Here's the two things we're going to do. We're going to want, the first thing we're going to do is just take a, a quick look through what the text says. What does Obadiah actually say? And then secondly, we're going to think, what does it mean for us? So first of then, what does Obadiah say? As Trudy was reading through, it didn't take you long I'm sure, to realize that Obadiah is speaking a message of judgment against Edom. Look again at how it starts in verse 2. Look at what God says about Edom in verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Just a couple of weeks ago, before Christmas, I was out jogging and as I'm jogging, I saw a koala that's on a tree. It's pretty low down, not much higher than my head height. And so I decided to stop. And after all, when you're jogging, you don't really need much of an excuse to stop, do you? So um, I tried, and I decided to film it. Here it is on the screen. This is the uh, koala I saw. And I was watching this for a bit, and these birds started to swoop down at the koala. You'll see in a moment. Not big birds. They're much smaller than the koala actually is. But they're having a go at this koala anyway. And I was watching this for a little bit, and I'm thinking to myself, why do they think they can get away with this? I mean, this koala is much bigger than them. If the koala just timed a poor swipe really well, these birds will be wiped out. Why do they do it? Well, perhaps it's because they've got some babies they're protecting further up the tree. 
almost certainly they've done this kind of thing before to other animals and they've got away with it. No koalas wiped them out in the past. So these birds have a sense of feeling safe. Perhaps there's a sense of pride that's crept in. You know, We can do this. We'll be safe. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe they're just animals acting on instinct. But that sense of pride, it has crept in for Edom. They have got this safe, secure place to live. It's great. Natural defenses all around them. No invading army can come in here and take us down. So they're safe. They can do what they want, right? But God says to Edom, no. Look at, look at it in verse 3. God says about Edom, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And for the first nine verses, Obadiah says again and again and again that Edom is going to face the judgment of God. Which makes you ask the question, why? What is it that these people have done? Why is God against them in judgment? In verse 10, you see the reason why. Look at verse 10 here. And and notice here, uh, Judah is being called by their ancient ancestor, Jacob. The name Jacob is referring to the whole nation of Judah. So God says to Edom, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Remember the, 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 the big thing that's just happened to the nation of Judah. They've been exiled. The Babylonians have come in, swept through, destroyed them and taken any survivors off to exile. That's what's happened to Judah. And what did Edom do? When all that was going on? Well, verse 11 says they were passive. They did nothing. They just sat idly by as Babylon came in. Verse 12 says they weren't just passive, but Edom took joy in Judah's defeat. They delighted in seeing their brother nation get taken down. Verse 13 says they didn't just take joy, but they also took plunder from Judah. They made themselves rich. Off of Judah's demise. But the real low point comes in verse 14. Where we find out that Edom assisted Babylon in destroying the Jews. They participated in destroying Judah. Uh, Take a look at verse 14 with me. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. Nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. As Babylon came through and and ransacked Jerusalem, the city where the Jews live, and as the Jews ran for their lives, there were the Edomites waiting, but not waiting to lend a hand to their brother nation to help them out in a time of need. They were waiting to cut them down with the swords. And if they didn't do that, they were waiting to take them back and hand them back over to the Babylonians so that they'd be slaves And God sees this and God says, no. God says to Edom, you will not get away with this. I am against you in judgment and you will be destroyed. 
That's the message, really, of Obadiah. Edom, your day of judgment is coming. Now, to modern ears, we hear this, and let's be honest, we don't quite like talking about the judgment of God very much, do we? I mean, it just sounds overly unharsh and, 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 and not really like God at all. I mean, isn't he supposed to be the loving God? Isn't that what we talk about God like? And in a sense, that's right. The, the judgment of God is a serious matter. It is a severe matter. But the judgment of God is also just. The judgment of God is also right. See, God is not the kind of God who's just kind of humming along in life nicely and something happens and he just in a fit of rage fires out of control and who knows when this is going to happen. That's not what God is like at all. God's judgment is, is careful. It's appropriate and it's right. In fact, t- take a look at what verse 15 says. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. You see, there there is an appropriateness to the judgment of God. And this is certainly true for Edom. If you've got the Bible, your Bible open there, you'll notice in verse 12, Edom gloated over Judah's downfall. So in verse 2, Edom is going to be humbled. In verse 13, they raided Judah. So in verses 5 and 6, they themselves will be raided. In verse 14, the Edomites ensured that Judah had no survivors. So in verse 18, they too will have no survivors. There's an appropriateness to the judgment of God, a justice there. What Edom has done to others, it will be done to them. And you can hear that and still think, look, from our point of view, we, we live in a country that hasn't seen the ravages of war in a very long time. Most of us, we've lived lives where we haven't been treated cruelly like the Jews were here. Where we haven't been treated as if our lives meant nothing. From our point of view, we might still see all of this and think the judgment of God is just harsh. It's not right. Something doesn't sit well with me about it. But for a moment, imagine, put yourself into the shoes of one of the Jews back then. There you are living in Jerusalem and your city has come under siege from a a mighty foreign army, one bigger than you've ever seen before. You're under siege in this city and finally, finally this army cracks through your defenses and and they're in the city and they're starting to do unspeakable things. And what do you do? You you run, don't you? You get out of there. You end up with a bunch of your neighbours fleeing, trying to get away from it all. And somehow you make it out of the city alive. And so you just keep going with your neighbours. As a group, you're travelling, running. Four or five days you're on the run, maybe more. And just when you think you might be safe, right? just when you've reached the mountains, just when you think you've escaped this invading military force because they can't bring their horses and chariots up here, can they? Just when you think you might be safe, that's when you're ambushed. That's when you see some of your neighbours who are leading the pack get cut down with swords. The rest of you just stop and throw your hands up. What do you do? You beg for mercy, right? But they give you no mercy. They just take you back the way you came. Hand you over to this army that's taken over your city. 
And you see one of your neighbors trying to comfort her daughter saying, no, no, don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But of course, everyone knows it's not going to be okay, right? And put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. And can you see why the judgment of God is a good thing? Why he doesn't let evil go unpunished? God is not that tyrant who flies into fits of anger. He's a God who judges with with justice, with fairness. And that is a good thing. So Obadiah says that Edom's day of judgment is coming because God will not let his people be mistreated. God will not let his people be mistreated. But actually, Obadiah is about more than just Edom's day of judgment. It's actually a message for all the nations Reminding everyone, everywhere, in every age, that the day of God's judgment is actually going to come on us all. Edom is the prime example, but this message of judgment is for all. Look at verse 15. It says, The day of the Lord of his judgment is near for all nations. As you've done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God's judgment will come on all of us. And at this point, you might be thinking, oh goodness, there's a lot of judgment in this book, isn't there? Is that all it's about? It actually does end on a note of hope. Uh, If you look at the last three verses, verse 19, 20, 21, you'll notice something about there's a message of hope there. So um, perhaps if you look at verse 19 and 20, you'll notice that there are lots of place names. uh, Negev, Gilead, Zarephath. And if you're anything like me, you read through this list and you think, well, I don't understand where they are. What's this about? What's it mean? Uh, And why is it important, for example, in verse 19, that the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines? It can all be a bit confusing when you read these verses together. But it's a message of hope here. The basic idea is you've got Judah, the Jews are in exile in Babylon. But God is saying to them, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'll put you in your land again. And in fact, I'm going to make it so that you have even more territory than you had before. And it's a, it's a message of hope, not just for Judah and the Jews, but for other nations as well. Because it says to them, do you want a way out from the judgment of God? Do you want to experience God's blessings instead? Then don't stand against my people. Stand with them, join them, be part of them, belong to the people of God. That's really a quick sketch through Obadiah. But what does it mean? What does it mean for them back then? What does it mean for us today? There's just two things I want to pick up here. The first is this. That God will bring justice for his mistreated people. God will bring justice to his mistreated people. Obadiah talks a lot about Edom, but it's not actually written to Edom or to the Edomites. It's written to the Jews, to God's people. And as Obadiah is writing to the Jews, he's telling them, 
God, that, that yes, you have been mistreated, but, but God is not unaware of this. God is not blind to what's happening to you. He's going to bring justice for the people who've oppressed you. Edom will face my judgment. Can you imagine the relief this brings for a Jew to hear this? Their, their tears have not gone unheard. The cruelty they've endured won't just be swept under the carpet as if it doesn't matter. God is going to act. He will bring justice for his people who've been mistreated. And friends, I want to say to us today, we have this same God as our God. His character has not changed. Just as he promised to bring justice back then, because that's the kind of character God has, so he'll deliver justice to his people today. That's the kind of character our God has. Now, most of us here today, I suspect, haven't suffered the kind of cruelty that the Jews back then went through. That's kind of unusual. There's plenty of Christians across the world who have experienced that kind of cruelty. Think for a moment of the Christians in Iraq and Syria and what they went through when ISIS kind of swept through a few years ago. Or think of the Christians in China whose government routinely seeks to destroy their faith and their church communities. Well, the list goes on and on and on. Friends, can I say to us, We need to pray for these brothers and sisters of ours. Pray for them, friends. Pray that they would not give up their faith in the Lord Jesus, despite what they face. And pray that God would bring justice for them. Will you do that? Will you pray for them? That's the first thing. God will bring justice for his mistreated people. But, but secondly then, Obadiah screams out to us that it is good to belong to the people of God. The day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment is near for us all. But these promises that God brings, the promises of God's blessing are open to us all too. In fact, through Jesus, God's promise of deep and lasting blessing are open to everybody. Those last three verses promised a lot of hope for the ancient Jews, but they never really experienced the fullness of this. Perhaps in part they did, but not fully. There were exiles that returned. Some of the exiles returned, but not all of them. And they went back into their land, but their land didn't increase in size. And even as they were back in their land, they didn't rule over themselves. There was always a foreign power ruling over them. This time that Obadiah envisaged, this time of great blessing for God's people, it didn't really come for the ancient Jews. Why is that? Is it because God couldn't really come through? Did he forget? Maybe he's just lazy and hasn't, his alarm hasn't gone off yet? But no, that's not it, is it? God is using the language that they are familiar with and the kind of ways of blessing that they are familiar with to talk about something even bigger and, and, and even better, a time when, gather would pe- when God would gather people, not just from the exiled nations of Israel and Judah, but, but from all nations, 
And he'd bring them into a kingdom that is far better than just a patch of land in the Middle East. Instead, he promises his people a new heaven, a new earth, one where the problems of this world just disappear, one where God himself is with us face to face. Friends, that is what Jesus brings, a kingdom that's not of this world, but one that is greater by far, one that is better than anything else here in this life can ever offer us. And I want to tell you, friends, it is good to be part of the people of God. The new year is well and truly upon us now. It's the 16th today. How are you feeling about what's ahead for the year? You might have a lot of reasons to feel hopeless. Troubles in home life, concerns over money, uncertainty about job security, worried about your kids, or what about COVID? I mean, it's still here, isn't it? We were supposed to be done and dusted with this about a year ago, and yet here we are, start of another year, and there's been more cases than ever right across our country. Who knows what 2022 has in store? Are you feeling hopeless about the year ahead? Look, if that's you, I really hope you've heard the message of hope that comes from Obadiah this morning. That it is good to belong to God's people. The promises that God gives us are true and certain. And so I want to urge you, hang on to them this year. Let let God's promises, his promises of a new heaven, a new earth, of life with him, a life free from the worries that this world will bring us, let God's promises speak to you. Let that shape your life. Let that shape the way you think about what's ahead and hang on to them, even amidst the difficulties that the year will bring you. I'm sure other of us are here, though, and we're feeling really positive about the year ahead. We're keen to get into it, eager We've got plans, things to do and achieve. We've got goals, things are going to drive us, things to look forward to, personal milestones, family achievements, fun experiences, celebrations. We've got plenty to look forward to in the year because the year holds so much promise for us, doesn't it? Is that how you're feeling about the year ahead? Just eager to get into it. If that's you, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you Our plans and and, and exciting things that we've got ahead in the year, that's not actually what should drive us into 2022. What we really need to be excited over, what we really need to be eager to be involved in is, is just that simple thing of belonging to the people of God. That should drive us in, in everything we do for the year ahead. See, we can put so much value on what we'll get out of 2022. But if the last couple of years have taught us anything, they've taught us that our plans and and the hopes we have can come to nothing just like that. Simply belonging to God's people, that, that is where the true value, that is where the best part of life comes from. Because not only does God make great promises, to his people. God is actually the one who can come through on them. Will you let God shape your priorities this year? Will you be excited about what he is excited about? Will you truly value 
belonging to the people of God. Let me pray that we will, friends. Let me pray for us. Our good and loving God, we thank you, we praise you that you're not a God who sees injustice and walks by. We praise you that you can and you do bring justice. Please do that for our brothers and sisters across the world who are mistreated. Please help them hang on to Jesus. And please, Father, bring justice for them. And for us, we pray for the year that's ahead. Whether we're feeling hopeless, whether we're excited, however we're feeling, Father, we pray that these promises you give us will be the thing that really drive us in 2022. That we would love and value and treasure belonging to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.